Well, you can open up to James chapter 1 this morning. James 1 is where we'll be. I've told you before, probably several times, that handyman skills are not something that I possess in great abundance. But as a homeowner, I have been forced over the years to attempt certain repairs on my house. And like some of you during this time of sheltering in place, I have done a few things, Bethany and I have, to try to uh, upgrade things or other projects that aren't necessarily repairs. One of the, the, the practices that I have learned in fixing something or in doing an upgrade is I will often ask someone who is experienced to come over and help me when I do projects. Uh, it is, it is a, a very good thing to have someone that knows better than I do what they're doing, to have them around when you're working on something. And as I've interacted with people who generally know what they're doing in the world of repairs and uh, fixing things and projects, I've noticed a, a huge difference in approach between an experienced handyman and a novice. The person who has experience expects that something will go wrong during the project. They've, they know that it's going to happen. And so when something goes wrong, they respond calmly and they know what to do and they have a solution at hand. A novice approaching a project has this vague hope that everything will go perfectly and the project will be done in 30 minutes and there won't be a hitch that will happen in the midst of it. And so a novice like myself, when something goes wrong, doesn't tend to respond with calmness and know-how, but instead responds with frustration at the slightest bump in the road. Now, I, I think many of us have this sort of vague hope and expectation in our lives that things will move along smoothly and that we'll never encounter a bump in the road or difficulty or any sort of a trial. And, you know, we've read scripture and so we, we sort of know in the back of our minds that the Bible says that we should learn to expect trials, but we sort of have, we hold out hope that things will go along smoothly and we don't prepare very well for the day of trouble and the day when problems do come into our lives. And so when something happens that's difficult, we always seem to be surprised and we always seem to be caught off guard and I personally tend to respond with frustration and anger a lot more than I do calmness and know-how in the midst of difficulty. Now, the beginning of the book of James, James is written by one of the key leaders in the church at Jerusalem, and he tackles this topic of adversity and trials right off the bat. And he's writing to people all over the Roman Empire who lived lives that were generally filled with difficulty. Life was not easy during this time, especially if you were a Jew living in dispersion and abroad throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, the people he's writing to would face trials and problems, persecution, poverty, difficulty, all the time. This was a common feature of their lives. And so he begins his letter by addressing this major topic. And I'll tell you, as we begin, as we jump into this letter and as we address this topic over the next couple of weeks, there may not be a topic, a biblical principle or a biblical topic that is more 
uh, relevant and more helpful for us. I mean, this is something we're all going to face. If you're not in the midst of a personal trial right now, you will be at some point in your life. And we're all in the midst of the current pandemic and the crisis that's happening around the globe right now. So this is a particularly appropriate passage for us. So James 1 verses 2 to 15 is where we'll be for the next couple of weeks. And we're going to see four practices that are necessary to respond to adversity with wisdom. Four practices necessary to respond to adversity with wisdom. And you can see the first one of these on the screen. The first practice is to cooperate with God's purpose. Now, I told you last week that as you read through the book of James, that you're going to see that he's organized this letter by sections where he directly addresses the recipients of the letter with the phrase, my brothers or my beloved brothers. And that sort of divides the letter mostly for us so that we know when he's starting a new topic and when he's dealing with a new subject. So you can see in verse 2, look down at your Bible, you can see he says, count it all joy, my brothers. And so that begins this fresh and new topic, the first topic he'll address. And then if you go down to verse 16, you can see that he begins another topic. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so that's important for us because we know, based on that, that verses 2 through 15 are all addressing the same topic. And sometimes it doesn't seem to be that way. When you first read this, these verses, you might think, oh, he's kind of dealing with a number of things. But all of these fit together under this topic of how, as believers, we approach adversity. You can also see there are several other things that tie this section together. The key practices that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, the key exhortations for how we approach adversity are found throughout this, this section, and they begin, or they're commanded by James using the phrase let, the, the word let. So the response to trials and difficulties, James gives us specific commands that he, he uses the word let uh, to, to let us know that he's, he's giving us these commands. So look down at verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Verses 5 and 6. Let him ask God, in verse 6, let him ask in faith. Now go down to verse, verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And then down at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. And so James is teaching us the habits or the practices that we need to develop and that are necessary to biblically and appropriately respond to trials and to adversity. And he wants us to respond this way because this is the wisdom that is from above, which that's one of the major themes of this book. And so the first practice that we're going to look at is found in verses 2 to 4, and this is so significant that we're going to spend the entire morning in verses 2 through 4 and on this first practice this morning. I want you to notice in verse 2 that James fully expects us to encounter trials. These are not unusual. It's not a surprise when we come in contact with difficulty and with problems. Let me read verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We're going to encounter trials. Life is made up 
of difficulties and problems in a lot of ways. And so what does James mean when he says that you're going to meet trials? What's he talking about when he talks about trials here? Well, this word that's translated trials in this passage can also be translated, or in this verse, can also be translated testing or even temptation. It's the same word that is used in verse 13. Look down there. Let no one say when he is tempted. And so it kind of has a bigger range here of trials, testing, temptation. It's kind of a broad word. It's used with different emphasis in different places. Now, the thing about trials or tests is that they come to us from two sources. They come to us from outside. So there are circumstances that come into our lives that we would consider a trial or a test. And there are trials or tests or temptations that come from inside of us. And we'll learn about that process in verses 12 through 15. So they come from outside you or they come from inside you. Now, the thing about this word and trials and tests is oftentimes the outside and the inside sources work together. There will be an outside circumstance that will cause you or I to respond internally with a temptation to sin against the Lord or to distrust God. Many, many times these two go together. That's why James in verse 2 uses this phrase, various kinds of trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Testing, temptation, trials come to us in a diversity of ways all over the map. There are all sorts of difficulties that we face, some small, some large, some external, some internal, all over the map. If you've ever been to Home Depot or Lowe's and you've seen the paint aisle. There are color swatches all over the place, and there are every variety of color that you can imagine, all with a unique name. I've often thought it would be an interesting job to name the colors for the different kinds of paint, but all these different colors in every shade and hue that you can imagine, a diversity of colors are available to you. That's the exact way that James is presenting trials here. All sorts of trials of all shapes and sizes come to us in this life. And one of the key things that makes it a trial or a test is oftentimes it will bring you to the edge of your ability. You are pressed to the max through this test. It's a challenge to you. Now, James is quite clear here in verse 2 that you and I have to learn to count it all joy when we encounter these various or diverse trials. In fact, when you look at verse 2, he begins with this command here. This isn't just a suggestion. This is not just something that's a really good idea. James is saying, as a believer, responding to trials with wisdom means that we must find joy in the midst of adversity. Now, let's be clear what he's not saying here. He's not saying that you and I ignore the difficulty of the trial. He's not arguing that you suppress your emotions and you pretend like everything is fine. 
He's not telling you to put on a happy face and say there's no difficulty out there. This is all wonderful. That's not what he's saying here. He's not arguing that even though you're going through the most excruciating personal tragedy of your life, that you just grin and bear it and act like everything's fine. That's not what he's saying when he says to count it all joy. When he uses this phrase, all joy, what he's saying is you should count this pure joy or genuine joy. We should be able to look at a trial and find joy, genuine, real joy in the midst of this difficulty that we're facing. Not every part of it is fun or enjoyable, but there is an element of the adversity that should bring joy to us. And he says here that we should consider or count trials as genuine joy. And the command to count means that we have to adjust our perspective. We have to consider it. We have to take a step back and think about this adversity. We have to ponder what's going on here. Now, I don't know about you, but when I face adversity or some difficulty, my first response is not to take a step back and think about what's happening in the midst of this. My first response often is to get frustrated and to get angry. And it's to say something like, why is this happening? This is annoying. I wish it wasn't happening like this. Or maybe your response is to think, I must have sinned. And this is God punishing me by bringing this difficulty into my life. Maybe you get angry with another person and you blame someone else for the circumstances or for what's going on. But James says here that you need to consider, you need to count, you need to slow down, stop shifting the blame, stop asking questions like why is this happening in frustration, and view the trial from a fresh and a biblical perspective. And that biblical perspective requires us to find joy in the trial. Now, I know that seems insane, right? To go through a difficult time and to be able to find happiness and joy. How can I look at something hard and find joy in the midst of that? Well, James explains how that is possible in verse 3. Look there. For, here's the explanation, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So here's what I would say about this. One author described this, that instead of looking at the trial, that we need to cultivate the ability to look through the trial. And that's a major difference in approaches to difficulty and, and problems in our lives. It's quite easy for you and I to get fixated on the trial, on the circumstance, on the adversity. That's all we think about. And we're constantly working through how we can figure this out and how we can release the pressure of this trial. But in order to find joy here, we have to move our gaze from looking at the circumstance at the trial to be able to look through the trial and to see what God is accomplishing through this. What is God doing in any trial that you or I are facing? Verse three, 
you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, the Bible presents a myriad of perspectives on trials and difficulties. So, one way that we think about trials is we know that God is going to set everything right in the future when Christ returns. So we anticipate the day when Jesus will come back, all sin and death will be eradicated fully and finally, and we will live forever with the Lord, and that gives us hope. That's one perspective biblically that we take on trials. That is not the perspective that James is giving us here. James is not thinking about some future day beyond this life and how that gives us hope in the midst of trials. James is saying that there is an earthly, temporal benefit for you in the midst of your trial. We find joy in the difficulty right now because we know that God is working to form character and virtue and Christ-likeness in us through the testing. The joy comes as we anticipate Certainly the future, as other texts teach, but the joy comes as we anticipate how I am being changed, how we are being changed as a church, the work that God is doing in us right now through this. And James says here that the outcome is endurance. It's steadfastness. So when we respond correctly to trials, when we consider them joy, when we recognize what God is doing in the midst of difficulties, we have a greater and greater capacity to endure. Now, believe it or not, I know this is a shock to all of you, but I have never been much of a weightlifter. I know, it's amazing. But when you lift weights, I do know, I know this to be true, when you lift weights, it puts stress on your muscles, right? And it slightly tears your muscles just a little bit. And so there's a good pain that you have after your muscles are torn and your muscles grow a greater capacity to lift something that is heavy. And that happens over time. They build back stronger. They grow endurance and they grow strength through the tension and through the trial that you're putting your muscles through. The pressure creates endurance. And it's somewhat similar for us as we encounter trials and difficulties. Our character, our capacity to endure, the strength with which we respond to difficulties grows as we face them with the right perspective. But when you lift weights, getting your muscles stronger is not the end goal. Most people lift weights for some greater goal or for some greater end. They may lift weights because they're involved in athletics. They're a basketball player or a football player. You may lift weights just to look stronger. But there's some greater goal or greater end That's the reason why you develop endurance and why you put your muscles through that. So here, when we're talking about trials, the endurance leads to something else. There's a greater purpose. God has a bigger end game with trials than just making you able to endure more trials. He's doing something else. What's he doing? Look at verse four. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's the command we talked about earlier to let. Let endurance or steadfastness have its work. It's doing something in you. The work of steadfastness is growing you towards something greater. I've had, over the course of my life, different goals in place, the different educational goals, different athletic goals. You know, I want to be able to do this in a year's time. And when you have an end goal and an end game in mind, then the daily grind and the difficulty and the tension is bearable and doable because you know what's happening and where you're headed and what you're aiming at. Now, I think when you set a goal for yourself in athletics or education or work, it's much easier to deal with the day-to-day grind because you have set the goal and you've brought the difficulty into your life. But we often forget that there's an end goal and a purpose for this in the midst of trials because we don't choose to bring these things into our lives. They come into our lives oftentimes without our consent and they just seem to pop up and they happen to us. And we think, I didn't choose this. I would never have picked this. And so it's easy to get frustrated by that and to forget that there's a good work going on in the midst of this. And James is teaching here that the wise response to trials and adversity is to remember that purpose, to keep that good purpose in mind. The rest of verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we develop endurance through trials, that leads to the full effect of completeness, of maturity, and of wholeness. One author said it this way, trials lead to well-rounded virtue. There is not virtue that trials cannot build. There is no defect trials cannot remedy. No strength trials cannot impart. And this is a, these, are, these are useful tools in the hands of the Lord to develop and cultivate Christ-likeness in us. Let me say it this way. Trials do the work of forming us into holy and wise people. The end goal is that we would be perfect and complete. You probably know this, but that idea of perfection here does not mean completely free from sin. It's not saying that in this life we can eradicate sin fully and walk without ever sinning or ever thinking a wrong thought. The idea of perfection and completion here is wholeness or maturity. There are no obvious character flaws in this person. They're complete. They're well put together as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting in the book of James, when you think about this idea of wholeness or completion or perfection and maturity, James puts a great deal of importance on being able to control our words as being a sign of maturity. I mean, look what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. You can just look across the page or, or flip over there. 
For we all stumble in many ways, right? Like we're going to sin. We're going to mess up in this life. But look, look what he says. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. He's a complete man. He's a mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's in control. He's complete. He's whole. And you can tell when he's able to control his words. Listen to chapter 1 and verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And so if we can't develop the virtue of self-control when it comes to our words, then we are not healthy, we're not complete, we're not whole believers. Now, here's the flip side of that. God could be working in you and in me through trials that we encounter the ability to control our speech. That could be one of the primary things that God is doing in us. Self-control with our words, with what we say about people and to people. James is also quite clear in this letter even beyond our words, that maturity or completeness is not a theoretical idea. This is not imaginative. It's not just something that's out there. If you think the right thoughts, this is concrete. It's real. It's genuine. And maturity displays itself in our actions day after day. Maturity means that there will be real changes in the way we behave. Listen to chapter 1 and verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That verse verse is so challenging to me. In some ways, I almost feel like it's it's such a simple idea. I mean, this is the type of lesson that you would teach to a group of, of children. When you hear your parents give you a command, you obey, you act on it, right? I mean, it's so simple, but I want to be the type of person who hears the word of God and obeys and acts on what he hears. And think about it. God might be bringing trials and difficulties into your life and into my life to help me become a greater doer of the word. Through the adversity, I learn to apply the scriptures and I learn to act on what I hear with greater consistency. And I learned that I have been deceiving myself and imagining that my religion is robust and my faith is complete and mature. And then in the midst of trials, I don't act on what I hear and God exposes that. And my words are filled with frustration and anger in the midst of the trial. And God develops maturity in me through that. But here's the thing. This work that James is describing in verses 2 to 4, this work of steadfastness and endurance that leads to fully formed disciples, those who look like Christ, those who are complete and mature, this work does not simply happen because you or I are going through a difficult time. We're all going through something very difficult right now. But trials do not automatically change you to wholeness. It's not that you put the quarter in of a trial and you get out maturity and wholeness. 
It doesn't work that way. You can respond to a trial or a difficulty and lash out with your words and your thoughts and anger and frustration and ungodly speech, and that will only further fracture your character. It will move you the opposite direction from maturity and wholeness. Trials may have the the effect of making you or I more spiritually unhealthy and more sick. And unfortunately, they often do. But the other option is that we can help one another. I love here how James doesn't just speak to individuals. What does he say? Count it all joy, my brothers. This is a community of believers who are living and working together and who are responding to trials together. We help one another to let the trial and the steadfastness have its full effect. And we cooperate with what God is doing in the midst of the difficulty. So, let me ask you a very pointed question this morning. Is the current trial caused by COVID-19 producing further virtue in you by patient endurance? Or, Have you lashed out in frustration and anger with your speech? And have you increasingly become a double-minded person? Says you have faith in God, but your words and your actions do not reflect what you're saying. That's a challenging question for me. And I would encourage you to consider your response in light of this passage. Now, Our title for this whole series is called Wisdom for Wholeness. And James is teaching us in this letter how to be wise and that that wisdom will lead us to maturity, to wholeness, to completeness. And I hope you can see how this opening passage fits into that theme. Over in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, you have, we talked, I think I read these last week, but you have this presentation of two forms of wisdom. There essentially are two ways to live. You can cultivate earthly or worldly wisdom, or you can develop wisdom from above. And when it comes to trials, there are generally two approaches to trials, and they fit very nicely into the earthly wisdom and the wisdom from above categories. I mean, what does James 3.14 tell us about earthly wisdom? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Earthly wisdom is characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and it is unspiritual and it is demonic. In other words, earthly wisdom does not have the ability to look through the trial and to see what God is doing in your life to bring you to completion. It cannot see the work that God is doing to cultivate Christ-like character in you. Earthly wisdom can only look at the trial and only get frustrated with the trial and only think about self. You can be sure that when you consistently respond to difficulties, small and large, with anger and frustration, that you are operating out of earthly wisdom. 
And you're only looking at the trial. And that sort of response will hardly let steadfastness have its full effect. Chapter 1 and verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But there's another way to live, and this is what James is teaching us. There's wisdom from above. And the wisdom from above knows that this is difficult and feels deeply the brokenness of the world and how uncomfortable this is and how hard this is. And it doesn't shy away from that, but the wisdom from above is able to look through the trial and find joy in the midst of difficulty. And the wisdom from above is able to do that because that person is cultivating a heavenly perspective. That person is able to see that, yes, this is uncomfortable, but man, what work God must be doing in me in the midst of this. And therefore, wisdom from above responds in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wisdom from above endures the trial and lets God do his work of developing Christ-like virtue in every area of my life. And so my, my encouragement to you today would be to consider the gracious work of our Lord. It's his kindness that he is showing us in the midst of these crazy times. I'm not saying to ignore the pain and the difficulty and and say things like no pain, no gain and just tough it out through the midst of it. This is tough. There should be tears. There should be longing to be back together. There should be longing for things to be normal again. But we can fully acknowledge the difficulty of the current circumstances. We can say how challenging this is And at the same time, we can look through the trial and we can find joy in the knowledge that God must be doing something amazing in us through this. He must be working to change you, to change me. He wants us to be more like his son. And his is a love that will not leave us in earthly wisdom. His is a love that will change us and do whatever it takes to graciously cultivate Christ-likeness in us, even if it means bringing hard things into our lives. And that's what we want him to do, ultimately. We want him to grow us and make us more like Christ so that he receives the honor and the glory. So let steadfastness have its full effect in the midst of your difficulties. Let's pray. Father, it's not easy to do this. This is not a a simple task that we're thinking through this morning. It's hard. It's hard to be uncomfortable. It's hard to have pain and difficulty. The sickness is hard. The economic difficulty is hard. The stress, the inability to be with family and friends, to gather as a church, all of that is very, very difficult, Lord. And, And it should be. Is not how it's supposed to be. But Lord, help us to look not just at the trial, but help us to look through it. 
and help us to see behind the storm clouds a smiling father who is saying, I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to work in you that which is good. And who is calling out to us, let endurance have its full effect so that we will be perfect and mature and complete. Give us that perspective this morning. Help us to trust your grace and your goodness and find joy in the midst of difficulty. In Christ's name we pray.